So to start off, disclaimer, it is pretty much impossible to teach from the scriptures, which is kind of how I do it, and Tim as well, about dating, because the Bible says absolutely nothing about dating, at least in the strict sense of the word. Relationships, yes, romance, of course, dating, no. And that's because dating, as we know it, is less than a century old. The scriptures were written thousands of years ago, a different language, on a different content, to a very different kind of culture. Because of that, the scriptures don't tell you how to date or court or whatever your style is. Every form of romance has pros and cons, and any attempt to claim one is biblical is doomed to failure. If you want to argue for what's biblical, technically it's arranged marriage. And I doubt really that many of you want to go down that path, unless if you're a parent and then you're a fan. So I am, and so now that I'm married and I have kids, I'm all for it. So. Um, although interesting, one study, and it's been redone a number of times, uh, of American and Indian marriages in the East, where marriage is still, for the most part, arranged, found that by average, on average, by the 10-year anniversary, couples with arranged marriages were far happier than couples in the West who married for love. So just to think about it, ask your mom and dad who you should marry. Now, as you know, um, some of the scriptures are, maybe this language is familiar to you, descriptive, and others are prescriptive, meaning most of the love stories that we read in the Bible, and there's actually quite a few, from Adam and Eve down to Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Rachel, and then, of course, the Song of Songs, most of the love stories in the Bible are descriptive. So there's no command, you know, a man shall ask a woman out and he shall bring flowers on the first date, which shall be for dinner and a movie. Like, that's, that's not there, all right? Now, as a general rule, and this is kind of my rule of thumb, where the scriptures are dogmatic, we should be dogmatic. Where the scriptures are ambiguous, um, we should be kind of fuzzy and laid back and open-minded. And where the scriptures are silent, we should shut the heck up. So I want to just make it crystal clear that we're waiting, as we talk about dating, we're waiting into the territory of opinion. Also, keep in mind that some things are abiblical and other things are anti-biblical. Abiblical meaning they aren't in the Bible, but they aren't at odds with it. Anti-biblical meaning they aren't in the Bible, but they are at odds, right? For example, culturally, you know, if you were born, maybe not anymore, but if you were born back in the day, it's the man's responsibility to bring flowers to the woman. Is that abiblical or anti-biblical? It's abiblical, right? It's nothing about that in the scriptures, but it's in line with kind of the thinking and the feeling of the biblical writers. But it's also the norm culturally for couples to sleep together after a few dates. Now, is that abiblical or anti-biblical? Yeah, anti, the latter. So all that to say, we have freedom in how we go about the journey from, hi, what's your name, to I now pronounce you man and wife, whatever you want to call that, dating, relationships, courting, whatever. Um, but that freedom needs to be shaped by what the scriptures do have to say about loveology, about a theology of marriage and sexuality and all the rest. So how's that for the disclaimer to end all disclaimers? That said, let's move on to a short history of dating because as you may or may not know, it's a newcomer on the scene and at least for me, it's helpful to think about how we got to where we're at. So it wasn't that long ago that your parents would have made the call on who you married for millennia, marriage was arranged by your parents or maybe by your village because marriage wasn't just about you. How narcissistic. Who would ever think that? 
Marriage was about your family. Marriage was about your mom, your dad. Marriage was about your clan or your tribe or your village. Marriage was about so much more than a man and a woman's feelings. That's how it was all over the world and still is in a number of places, including the East. And so in some cultures, like early Jewish culture around the time that the scriptures were written, you didn't even meet your wife at times until your wedding day. In other cultures, as we kind of evolved over time, you had a say or at least a voice into who you married, but either way, your spouse was picked out for you because who you married was considered way too important of a decision to leave up to a couple of amorous, kind of emotionally incontinent lovers. Then, in the Middle Ages, you see the beginning of what we think of as chivalry. So you have Don Quixote, right, in that story, the knight in shining armor. You have marriage for love. You have the romantic period starting to get going. Still, though, for the most part, at least in the upper classes, marriage was arranged. It wasn't until the 19th century that culture made the shift to calling, which is what it was called. The woman actually usually started the process, not the man. She would let a man know that she was interested, and then he would get permission from her mom or her dad or father, and he would come calling on her. The couple would spend time at the woman's home, usually in the parlor if it was cold outside or on the front porch. Nothing was done in secret. The relationship was on display in public, out in the open. The family was still very much involved, but it gave more freedom for the man and the woman to pick and choose. Early in the 20th century, so not that long ago now, people started dating. Now, the word date was used as slang for getting a prostitute early on. Yep, true story. But over time, it's hopefully lost that meaning. Dating, um, it actually started with the urban poor. So as the West urbanized, in particular New York City, there were no more parlors or there were no more front porches. So the couple would go out on the town. And then with the birth of the entertainment culture, which obviously you know well, dating spread up the socioeconomic ladder and into culture at large. At this point, romance became fully, absolutely disconnected from the family. So the family may or may not be involved, but the relationship is now closed off, private. It happens at a restaurant or in a park or at a concert or a bar or in a bedroom. I think we're actually past dating to a new form of romance. Now couples start with sex and what used to come at the end of a romantic relationship as the kind of sought-after prize once you cross the finish line into marriage now comes at the beginning of a relationship. Man and a woman meet at a party, at a bar, on a trip for work, at a nightclub, whatever. They sleep together, instant gratification. Then if they feel like they are a good fit and they want to start a relationship, fine. If not, they move on. I'm not sure there's a name for this other than screwed up. Now, with the exception of the last one, there is good and bad in all of these, right? So you can kiss dating goodbye, and hug Cordian hello, or whatever <laughs> your style is. But the reality is that there are pros and cons to each one. And any attempt to say, this one's biblical, is just not right. But that said, we all know there are some ways to date that are wise and others that just aren't wise at all. So here's a few case studies. This is stuff I see in my church. And even though we're kind of on the other end of the West Coast where there's a lot more beards and flannel, still everybody has beards and flannel. Even the women in my city have beards and flannel. So, <laughs> so here's a few case studies 
of how kind of not to date. This is what I see at, in the culture of uh, Bridgetown Church, where I'm a part, my guess is some of it will make sense to you here. So first is what I would call dating as shopping. So these are people with the list. You know what I'm talking about? He needs to be 6'1", thin, but muscular, well-dressed, but not too stylish and vain, successful, but not too driven, well-off, but not greedy, you know, and on down the list. And these people walk into a room, and they start scanning for somebody who fits the profile, right? And usually, um, the, the focus is on stuff that's skin deep, literally. Like, so in a church, you have a church that's thousands of people, like Reality LA or whatever, and the same 10 women get asked out over and over and over again. This is basically a narcissistic way to go about dating. My advice is that if you have a list, either throw it away or keep it really, really, really short. And make sure it's not all stuff that's skin deep. And it's not wrong, you know, to, to kind of know what you want in a spouse or in a partner. Fantastic. But keep an open mind and treat every date or every conversation or every cup of coffee not as shopping. Does he or she fit the profile? Oh, you have 25 of the 39, but you're not quite there. <laughs> Instead, treat it as learning. This is what a date should be. A date should be a time to learn somebody. I want to see who God made this person to be. I want to see what God is at work doing in this man or this woman. And of course, yeah, I want to see if that's a good fit for who God made me to be. But either way, I simply, over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or an evening together or a day at the beach, I want to celebrate who this person is as an image bearer of God and what Jesus is doing in their life. So that's one kind of wrong way to do it. Dating is shopping. Another I see is dating as the search for the one. So as I said before, there's this long-standing urban legend about the one, the idea that out there somewhere is your missing half, or maybe it's the language of soulmate who is made to complete you. And while all of that is romantic-sounding, it is not only abiblical, I would argue it's anti-biblical, it's dangerous and it's damaging. So this idea does not come from the scriptures, um, but actually from another ancient writing by Plato called the Symposium. Some of you have read it, I'm sure, for college. Plato, Plato, in his overview of Greek mythology, tells the story that originally humans were androgynous with four arms, four legs, two faces, and both male and female genitalia. They were starting a rebellion against the Greek pantheon, so Zeus, the king of the Greek gods, came up with a plan. He split humans in half into male and female, so they were at half strength, and he had twice as many servants. And ever, so he's kind of a brilliant guy. And ever since, in Greek mythology, we have been searching for our missing half, our soulmate who is out there to complete us. Now, contrary to that, the scriptures clearly teach that, in the language of Paul, all have, what, sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning we're all screwed up, we're all in process, none of us are fully who God made us to be, at least not yet. And so there is, as Tim Keller said, every other person on the planet at some level is a bad match for you. There is no perfect human being out there who is your missing half. That's Plato, that's not Jesus, that's not the biblical authors. So my advice in dating is don't hunt for the one. Get to know somebody and see if they are a bad match, but not nearly as bad as all the others on the planet. <laughs> so that's maybe a little bit of a cynical way to think about it. I don't mean it in a negative way at all. But seriously, this search, I think it's paralyzing for people. I know people that are in a dating relationship, and they're a great match, and they're a good fit, and they're in love, and there's hope for the future, and like similar calling, but there's this, you know, well, I don't know, I don't like two things about her. I don't think she's the one. 
well, maybe she's just kind of annoying in those two things. And I'm sure you have about 27 of those, all right? So um, third, if you're taking notes, is dating, what I would call dating as Moses and the burning bush. Here's what I mean by that. These are people who, God bless them, take dating way too seriously. And what that looks like in the church is they pray about it to an unhealthy degree. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm all for prayer. I'm all for listening prayer. I'm all for Holy Spirit. What are you saying? But what happens is that people pray and pray and pray and pray for a month, for six months, for a year. Should I ask her out? Should I ask her out? And by the time they feel like, yes, God told me to take you out for dinner, they might as well be saying, hi, what's your name? Will you marry me? And, and then they have all this weird, you know, hey, God told me to take you out for coffee thing. I'm like, it's funny because God left me in the dark on that, and you're creepy. Um, <laughs> so no, Right? And then sometimes people start dating, and a few months into the relationship, it's all fine, but they're really not a good fit, but then they have this sense, no, God told me to go out to coffee with her. I, that means, therefore, I should marry her, or whatever. And so this is when you have people who break up, and this is the classic, like, cheesy church culture line. Why did you break up? Oh, I don't know, I just didn't have peace about it. Is that, is that a LA thing, or is that just a Portland thing? Like, I didn't have peace about it. It's like, so you mean you're passive aggressive, and you don't know how to deal with conflict, and say, <laughs> Sorry, because that's it's the same thing. So my advice is be honest, calm down a bit, earth to reality, don't hyper-spiritualize dating. Of course, I'm all for, I just want to reiterate, I'm all for listening prayer, I'm all for have Jesus invade your life with what he wants, but don't hyper-spiritualize it in the negative sense of the word. Then last, I would say, of course, you have dating is hanging out. So this is basically the exact opposite end of the spectrum, where people treat dating kind of like goofing off or no more. So sometimes there'll be a couple, you know, in our church, and, hey, are you guys dating? We're like hanging out. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> like, oh, we're just, like, you know, we're hanging out. Cool, bro. Like, whatever. <laughs> so you mean you're just irresponsible, and you don't know where you're going with your life, and you really have no clarity, and you're not, like, there's no conviction? Oh, cool, yeah, that's what I thought you meant. You're just hanging out. <laughs> So if you're not ready, if you're not ready to move towards marriage, fine, but don't lead somebody on who is. So don't stall. It might be cool with you to spin your wheels for a decade of your life and waste time, but that's not cool to do to somebody else. Don't expect somebody else to waste their life like you. God bless you. Just happy you're here. Um, <laughs> Sure, this will be my first and only invite to LA. So, um, moving on, here's a few case studies um, of not to go about dating, but what's the right way to go about it? So, that really is the question, right? So, that's all stuff that it sounds via the laughter is not all that foreign in LA as in Portland. But it feels like as a generation, we're flying blind, at least when it comes to relationships, whether you wanna call that dating or courting or whatever you want to title you wanna slap on it, it feels like we're kind of flying blind. We know how not to do it. Yeah, that's lame, that's lame, that's lame. But we're not sure how to do it because we don't have really a picture or a paradigm to show the way, which is where I think the Song of Songs come in. So turn there one more time to Song of Songs. This time, let's start off um, in chapter two. And I wanna take a little bit of time here again, as I said before, most of the book is about sex, but not all of it. A good deal of it is about this relationship and the story between a, a king-like figure and this woman called the Shulamite, which is a village where she was from. And it's, 
it's honestly not easy to interpret. If you ever read this and you think, I'm kind of lost, yeah, well, welcome to the club. And part of that's because it's poetry. But that said, there are glimpses all the way through of what a healthy relationship looks like meaning the kind of relationship that God puts his stamp of approval on and says, yes, well done. Hey, write that down. In fact, put that in the scriptures. I think that in this ancient poem, we have the picture or the paradigm that we need to construct a relationship that will carry you to your wedding day and past it with joy. So in the song, as I read it, there are four marks of a healthy relationship. Whether you want to call that relationship dating or not is up to you. But there are... Four marks, and um, we'll talk about the line, the friends, and the journey to the day, but first we'll begin what I would call the chase. So at the beginning of the poem, we read about the king and this woman, the Shulamite, out on a date, basically, and this first part is written in the woman's voice, which makes it all the more interesting. So Song of Songs, chapter two, let's start off in verse eight. She's speaking, listen, my beloved, here he comes, Leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. So good. Look, let's just say that to your boyfriend, sisters. Just you look like a young stag today, honey. So there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land, the fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. And then this is the man speaking, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places of the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. The opening story is of springtime love. It's a vivid picture of this man calling out this woman. He comes to her home like the young stag that he is, and the first words on his lips are, quote, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. In fact, he says that not once, but twice, at the beginning and at the end of the poem. So he's wooing this woman. He's calling her to come Away. And that, I would argue, is the man's job to chase, to pursue, to draw the woman into a relationship. In the next stanza, he writes, My dove in the clefts of the rock and the hiding place in the mountainside, show me your face. And I love that line. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So he's coaxing this woman out of hiding. He's creating a safe place for her where she can be open and vulnerable. He's calling her out. Hey, you're beautiful. I'm here. I'm after you. I want to know who you actually are. But it's not like the Shulamite, this woman, is passive in the chase at all. She's anything but shy. In the opening stanza of the book, she says, if you read chapter one, take me away with you, let us hurry. (laughs) Which is just awesome. So she wants this man, like, hey, you, mister, take me away, I'm waiting, right? She wants this man to take her away. She wants this man to chase after her. So she lets the king know, hey, I'm here, and I'm waiting, and I want you to knock on my door. And I think that there's something in here about how God intended male and female relationships to thrive. It is a two-way street, for sure. Hey, take me away, I'm waiting. Ah, come out, my darling. But... I think it is the man's job to instigate, to activate, to take the first step. 
And I say that because from Genesis 2 all the way on, men are called to lead. It's Adam that's first on the ground in Eden. It's Adam that sings over his wife. It's Adam that calls her woman, not the other way around. It's the man that, quote, shall leave father and mother, not the woman. And in the New Testament, Paul makes a comment about how Adam was formed first and then Eve. And that's honestly not sexist, at least I don't think so. All I think he means by that is men carry responsibility to lead in a relationship. Now, by lead, that word right there is dubious. I do not mean boss around or take charge or dominate or intimidate or any other stupid thing that sexist, misogynist men have done in the name of, quote, the Bible. By lead, I mean step out and take responsibility to care for and listen to and love and serve in a sacrificial way and risk. And that is scary, in particular that last part, to risk. Because every time that you step out, there is a chance that you'll fall through the ice, right? You risk failure, you risk rejection. I mean, you know that feeling, guys, when you finally get up the nerve to ask a girl out, and then she says no? It's not exactly like a pep talk kind of feeling, right? It's, it can be just deafening. But rejection, listen, rejection is a part of life. No matter how hard you try to insulate yourself or protect yourself or safeguard, at some point in time, you will fail. It's only a matter of time. Like, clearly, I'm not a self-help preacher, all right? But a central part of becoming a man or a woman is learning to take risks. Learning to fail, this is part of maturity, learning to fail and to fail well. This is true of love, but it's also true of education and your career. It's true of the gospel. It's true of all of life. If we are not willing to take risks, and if we are not more than willing to fail, then we will never grow beyond an impoverished version of ourselves, of who we could have been. You know, I have three kids and two boys, Jude and Moses, and the mantra, I know most of you are not parents, but the mantra of modern-day parenting can essentially be summed up in two words, be careful. So if you go to a park and just sit in the back and count how many times you hear mom, dad, nanny, whoever, be careful, watch out, be careful, be careful, be careful. I mean, that is just like we live in this weird moment. And so I work overtime, and maybe this is like immaturity on my part as a young dad, but I work hard to never say that to my kids, never, ever. It's more like, go for it. You might die, but it's okay. I'm here for you. <laughs> Like, hey, oh, you got that. Go a little higher. Next, next run up, buddy. You got it. Go. Yeah, it's okay. Nah, it's just a broken leg. Don't worry about it. So, and the reason for that is I don't think it's because I'm immature. Maybe it is. Maybe it's both and. But it's because, you know, in all honesty, I am not scared of my nine-year-old Jude falling out of a tree and breaking his arm. But I'm scared to death of my son growing up to be scared to climb a tree. And the same is true for my daughter. I want my daughter, I want my sons to grow up, to risk, to adventure, to be more than willing to fail in order to become who God called them to become and do what God called them to do. One of the most disheartening traits, in particular in a man, but in a man or a woman, is cowardice. And as followers of Jesus, male and female, we are called to live by faith in the language of the scriptures. And it's what I love. I mean, Jesus gives us the freedom to fail because we are loved, right? No matter what happens, you're loved. Whether you succeed or fail, whether the business venture is a raging success or a disaster, 
whether she says yes or says you're really creepy and literally runs the other way. Either way, you are loved. Your self-worth does not come from how many followers you have on Twitter or whether or not you get that deal or whether or not you're successful or how much money you make or who she is or he is or whether or not they say yes, which means your self-worth doesn't come from any of that which means you are free to risk, to fail, and then to get back up and try again. It's okay. And so love is a chase, and it starts when a man says, come away, because the woman already said, hey, let us hurry. So, <laughs> secondly, if you're taking notes, that was the chase, and now let's talk about the line. So we already read earlier in chapter four that the Shulamite was a, quote, sealed fountain end quote, or virgin on her wedding night. But that does not mean that she isn't sexualized. In the poem, she is by far the more sexual of the two. Just to clarify, the woman is more sexual than the man in the story. And all through the song, there's this refrain, this chorus, that the Shulamite keeps coming back to. For example, in chapter 2, verse 7, we read this. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field... Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. One more time. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. She says this, by the way, not once, not twice, but three times in the poem, at the beginning and in the middle and then at the end. So the beginning of this refrain is about foreplay, right? His left arm, if you, I think I missed that verse in verse six, his left arm is under my head and his right hand embraces me. This is foreplay. She's deeply enjoying sex with her husband. But the second part is a word to her friends, to her single kind of girlfriends or whatever, and it's a warning of sorts to not, quote, arouse or awaken love until it so desires, meaning until the right time, until there's a context for you to play out your sexual desires. So this is the question about essentially the line, right? Which is the question that I'm sure like in Tim's list of questions, there's probably like 80 of them. So how far is too far? right? There's a whole lot of ground between a first kiss and intercourse. At what point is it sex? What's okay? What's not okay? What's sin? What's not sin? So we're sexual beings, and that's good. God made you that way, and he made marriage as the context for you to enjoy and express your sexuality. That's all great, but you are sexualized long before your wedding night. Right? In particular now, as year after year, the median age for marriage inches up year after year. I mean, the New Testament, the median age for marriage was about 15. So now we're at 27 for women and 28 for men. So that's, that's more than a decade added on between when you are sexualized in your body and you have a wife or a husband. So how do you express your sexuality in that time on the way to marriage? What's okay? What's off limits? To the Shulamite, the question isn't how far can we go, but rather it's when can we start. And so her advice is simple, but I think it's worth following. And it's basically don't wake up the sexual part of your relationship until you can follow it all the way through. Which means don't go anywhere near the line until your wedding day. That's why she says it, not once, not twice, but three times. She's driving the point home in ancient literature like the Bible. Whenever a phrase is repeated, it's for emphasis. They did not have bold or all caps or italics. So if you wanted to really say something extra loud, you would repeat it over and over again. This is her way of saying, listen, you need to get this. 
Because nothing, not to get all heavy again, but nothing does more to sabotage a relationship than porneia or sexual immorality. It's lethal. It does so much damage. Here are three reasons. There are more, but let's just start with three for today. Um, other than, of course, like it's wrong, but let's like talk about the why behind that. So first off is what we already said earlier, that in sex, two people become echad or one, um, but in dating, it's long before any covenant is made. There's no, hey, until death do us part. That's all out the window. It's just two. I think you're beautiful. I think you're whatever. I like you. That's all there is. And so, but in that, two people become one. Secondly, sex obscures your vision. So judgment goes out the window. We've all seen the guy dating the girl or the girl dating the guy who's a jerk and her friends are all saying, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? You can do so much better. Why are you wasting your life on him? You should break up. But for some strange reason, she can't see it and she's defending him or vice versa. Nine times out of 10, they are sleeping together. And any objectivity that they once had is out the window. It's obvious they are not a good fit. Family, friends, everybody knows you guys are not a good fit for each other. But they are not accurately able to see each other. Now, once again, in marriage, this is beautiful. This is awesome. Right? Think of that proverb, love covers over a multitude of sins. And sex sure helps with that. But outside of marriage... This just makes a bad problem worse. And then third, even if you end up marrying the person that you're fooling around with, you can't build a relationship on sex. You just can't. For starters, it's not sustainable. And at some point, you want more out of a relationship than foreplay. You want a friend. You want a partner to go make a world with. You want a lover, yes, but you also want a mom or a dad. You want somebody to push and pull you to become all that you are. You want to do life together. And you want to enjoy each other's company long after your ability to make love has faded for decades, not months. But when you're dating, there's no way to know if you have that kind of chemistry until you spend a season of your life together where sex is not involved. Now, for all of those reasons and more, the Shulamite's refrain is invaluable. Hey, don't wake this up until you follow it through. Do not arouse, do not awaken love until it so desires. Listen, all I have to say today is listen to her. And in doing so, listen to God. Do not arouse or awaken the sexual part of your relationship until it's time. The time will come in the relationship when it's right, and if and when it does, you'll discover that it was more than worth the wait. So, chase the line. Next, let's talk about the friends. So the song is really, in all honesty, it's more like a play than a poem. It has characters, it has the king, obviously, and the Shulamite. And then we read about this group of people called the friends. These are kind of the woman's girlfriends. You have them, millennia later, across cultural boundaries. Every woman has her posse, right? So... Um, these are people that speak into the relationship from the outside. So from the beginning, if you have chapter one open, the friends affirm the relationship is a good thing. The first thing they say is in chapter one, verse uh, four, we rejoice and delight in you. We praise your love more than wine. They're saying, hey, this guy is a catch, well done, we're behind you, yes, you should date him, yes, you should maybe even marry him. And then later they help the couple navigate the road to marriage. At one point, the Shulamite is uh, searching for the king, he's gone, he's lost, she doesn't know where he is, and they say this in chapter one, verse uh, eight, if you do not know, most beautiful women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. 
So they're saying, hey, here's how you do it. Here's how you navigate the road to marriage. The point is that this couple was not alone. So a story about a king and a shepherd girl is also a story about her friends and her family. And they all had a voice to give input into the relationship, wisdom and rebuke and clarification, and yes, you're on the right track, or no, here's where you're not. We, on the other hand, live in what is hands down the most hyper-individualistic society in the world, and in particular in a city like LA, where the majority of you are not from here, the odds are your family is not in the area, but there is no way to date well in isolation. You have to be a part of a community. For the first time in human history, dating has been, for the most part, disconnected from family and friends. I mean, how often do we see a couple get together and then go into, at my church, we call it hibernation. Like, you're there, and you're hanging out all the time, and yeah, man, let's hang out. And all of a sudden, they start dating, and then they just disappear for a year, and next thing you know, hey, will you be my best man? I have not seen you in 12 freaking months, right? So... I'm just saying that if you open up your relationship to people you know and trust and you give them a voice to watch and participate and speak into your relationship, you will do well. However, one of the reasons we don't do this is because we all know what it means. It means you open your relationship up to scrutiny. You can't hide, you have to be honest, you have to be transparent about your sexuality, about what's going well, what's not going well. You have to be honest about the good and the bad. And then as a result though, if you have the courage to do that, your friends, at least if you have good friends, family, community, church, they will help you think straight, help you make wise decisions, help you sidestep mistakes, and help you walk forward at the right pace. So who are your, quote, friends? Who are your community? Maybe it is actually just friends. Maybe it's a community group here at Reality. Maybe it's your family. I have no clue. But who are the people you know and trust? The question, if you're dating right now, if you're engaged, is are you inviting them to speak into your relationship? Are you doing it alone, just the two of you off? Okay, see you guys in a year at the engagement party. Or are you inviting your friends, whoever they may be, to speak in so that you can do well? So, the chase, the line, the friends, and then lastly, we have what I would call the journey to the day. So in chapter 3, if you turn the page, we read about the long-awaited wedding day, chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? So this dude has like a really good cologne. Look. It is Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel. So the dude has his posse as well. All of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple. And I love this line. Its interior inlaid with love. I don't even know what that means, but it's so freaking red. (laughs) Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion, all you friends. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his what? Wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So it's interesting. The first half of the song has this tension to it, a movement, if you would. The king is coming up from the desert, from solitude, to the wedding and to his bride. And this poetry moves and kind of escalates and builds and crescendos all up to the wedding day. 
And that, I would argue, is what a healthy relationship looks like. It has motion, it has inertia, it has cartography. There's a beginning and an end to the journey. Put another way, it's going somewhere. I would argue that all healthy relationships are either moving towards or away from marriage. That's a key piece of romance before marriage to answer the question, should we get married? Should we spend our life together? Is this the right fit? Not the one, but is this the right fit for me, for us, for life? Dating to date is stupid. It's a waste of heart. It's a waste of your time. It's in particular a waste of your sexuality. You're not looking for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You're looking for a husband or wife. Now, that said, I don't think this means that you can't be friends with somebody of the opposite sex or that you need to stress out your rela- over your relationship like you have to know right away, like coffee number two, she's the one or not or whatever. If anything, at least in church culture, not in culture at large, but in church culture, I think that a lot of couples take dating way too seriously. Sometimes they just want to say, calm down, it's a cup of freaking coffee. <laughs> it's okay, just talk, it's okay, all right? But I do think this means you shouldn't date until you're ready, or at least close to ready, to get married. At least not date seriously. Because, as I said earlier in the morning, the point of your relationship isn't your relationship. Right? Remember what marriage is for. Friendship, gardening, sexuality, family, recreation. And so a healthy marriage is built around a calling, and a healthy relationship gets that from the start long before the wedding day. Every cup of coffee, every night out, every walk in the park. Do you have a park here? No, it's L.A. Every walk in the whatever, reservoir. <laughs> every, every moment is a step. I like L.A., by the way. Whenever I'm in the mood for traffic, smog, and really cool culture, really cool culture, I come here, all right? But every step is a movement farther away from or closer to man and wife. So that's it as I see it. The chase the line, the friends, and the journey to the day. Now, these are more of a compass on a map than a list of do's and don'ts, right? This is simply a trajectory for you, as I read the song, to follow in your relationship. In closing, why don't you turn really fast to Matthew 7. This is in what is now called the Sermon on the Mount. At the time, it was just called, hey, Jesus is up on the top of the hill teaching. <laughs> that was good. Wow, that was awesome. That wasn't in my notes. Mental note later. Um, but this is kind of the central collection of all the most important teachings of Jesus. And I just want to read the end. Okay, this is after everything that Jesus has to say about the kingdom of God and marriage and sexuality and nonviolence and worry and anxiety and truth and integrity. I mean, after Jesus has to say about all of this, He has this incredible, really moving analogy at the end of his sermon or teaching or whatever you want to call it. And it's this, chapter 7, verse 24. This is Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, all right, the Sermon on the Mount, and puts them into practice is like a wise man, and here's the analogy, who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." So in this analogy, um, Jesus is speaking about your house. 
your house is a metaphor for your life as a whole, but a first century Jew would have understood house as a euphemism for your family. Okay, we don't really think of it that way, but any good self-respecting Jew would have heard Jesus say house and would have thought family. And just as it takes time to build a house, like with as a dwelling place, it also takes time to build a life together with another man or woman and then to eventually build a family. And the key line in the middle of Jesus' teaching here is everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is saying that if you build your life and your life together with your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, husband, wife, if you're married, If you build your life on obedience to his teachings, then no matter what comes against you, the, quote, wind and waves, your relationship, your family, your house will stand the test of time. But if you don't, if you go your own way, if you follow in the footsteps not of Jesus but of Adam and Eve, and you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you say, well, that's fine for you, that's fine for so-and-so, but you know what? It doesn't, I feel like I'm cool. I feel like this. I feel. And you become the arbiter of what's right, what's wrong, what's okay, what's not okay in marriage and sexuality and relationships. And if you do your own thing, then in that moment of crisis, and we all know that it's only a matter of time until we all face some kind of crisis, in that moment, your house, your shared life together will crumble to pieces. This analogy is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the closing line in that sermon is, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What a haunting way to end a sermon. And I think that Jesus' analogy is essential. On a more positive note, as we just kind of wrap up our time together, I know it was a Q&A, but I'm basically done now. In the early months and years of a relationship, you are laying the foundation for your house. That's what you're doing. So if you're dating somebody right now, if you're on date number two or you're engaged, you are laying the foundation. Even if you're single and you don't even know who that person is, right now and how you live and what you do and what you don't do and your relationship to pornography and your relationship to the members of the opposite sex and how you do community and how you do money right now even if you have no clue who your future spouse is you are right now laying the foundation for your house and this time is crucial because you are setting the stage for the rest of your life together and if you go about it the wrong way right, in disobedience to the way of Jesus and all that he has to say about what it means to be human, then you are setting the stage for disaster. But on the positive note, if you build on Jesus' way, single, dating, engaged, married, if right now you build one day at a time, one decision at a time, one glance, one thought, one cup of coffee, one moment, one kiss at a time, if you build on obedience to Jesus' teachings and on obedience to his way, then your relationship will flourish not for a month or for a year, but for a lifetime, it will go on and become a house. So all I have to say in closing is to all of you, and thank you so much, it was so good to be here, but may you dig deep in this season of your life, may you dig deep, and may you dig well.